so the way I describe navigation, it's one of the um, it's one of the most important backcountry skills, um, but it's definitely like the most liberating. So like I think in terms of importance, I would put it on par with like you know, knowing what gear to pack or you know knowing how to prepare your food or leave no trace or some of those, some of those other like core skills. But there's no other skill out there that allows you to um, really drive your own trip. Welcome back to the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. I'm your host, Shanti. Today, we're catching up with adventure athlete and explorer of wild places, Andrew Skirka. Skirka made his name in the outdoor world as the first person to hike the 7,700-mile sea-to-sea route from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and the first person to hike the Great Western Loop, linking together the PCT, the CDT, and other trails in a 6,800-mile trip around the American West. Now, no doubt those are incredible feats by themselves, but what really put Skirk on the map was his Alaska Yukon expedition, where he skied, hiked, and packed raft his way through 4,700 miles of Northern Territory alone. These wilderness trips earned him the title of Adventure of the Year by National Geographic and Outside Magazine, and Person of the Year by Backpacker Magazine. On top of all that, Skirka is an author, having written The Ultimate Gear Guide, published by National Geographic. And he also writes about all things backpacking, including gear reviews and backpacking tips, on his well-known website, andrewskirka.com. In recent years, Skirka gave up the dirtbag life of living out of his Pontiac vibe, and he changed course, so to speak, and pardon the pun. He has settled down a little bit now. He's married, he owns a home in Boulder, Colorado, he and his wife have a cat, and he owns his own business called Andrew Skirka Adventures, which focuses on guiding and teaching clients how to backpack the right way, as he says on his website. If you're lucky enough to get on one of his trips, yes, there is an application process and sometimes a waiting list, you'll get to explore beautiful and wild places with Skirka and his list of accomplished mountain guides. Places like the Brooks Range in Alaska, the High Sierra, the canyons of southern Utah, and of course the Rockies. Skirka puts in high mileage days with his clients, taking them off trail to rarely visited corners of America's most beautiful national parks. And along the way, he teaches all of his backcountry skills, including navigation using a paper map and compass. Backcountry navigation is an art form to Skirka, having used it to find his way on all three of his major expeditions. Today, Skirka is going to let us in on his method for teaching navigation in the backcountry. He also dives into some of the high routes he's developed over the years, and he lets us know about the one true and time-tested piece of gear that's been with him since he started all of this backpacking almost 20 years ago. I can't wait for this one. So here we go. Thanks for being on the podcast, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Um, now, you know, you, you've been hiking, you've been backpacking, trekking in the wilderness for what, like 20 years now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually, thank you for making me feel old. Uh, it's not, it hasn't been quite twenty years, but yeah, my first big um, through hike was uh, two thousand two. So 2000. I am I am firmly at this point an old timer. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, when you did start off in two thousand two, you kind of started off with a bang, wasn't it? Like a wasn't it a total through hike of the AT while you were still in college at Duke? It was. Yes, yeah. so I. Um, I'd done a little bit of backpacking prior to that, but not much. So um, like many thru-hikers who get on the trail every spring, it was essentially my first backpacking experience. Not wow. recommended. Not recommended. 
Well, what inspired you then to go so big right off the bat with something like the AT? I don't think if if I if I could have gotten out a little bit more prior, um, I think I would have been totally good with that. But it's just difficult being you know as a college student, far from mountainous areas, so the opportunities to like like get out regularly and like figure out how to backpack before I took on a through hike was were limited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, the Appalachian Trail, uh, you know, that seems to inspire a lot of people. I grew up on the East Coast, so, um, and uh, regularly during the summer, we'd take family vacations up to like, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and my friends and I, we'd, during the summer, we'd like, especially once we got our licenses, we'd drive up to, to New Hampshire and go climb Mount Washington. So it wasn't a, it was a big leap, but it wasn't like, a big leap in terms of like the uh, the undertaking, but it wasn't unfathomable for me, given that I grew up in that environment. Right, and some of the biggest and most difficult parts of the AT were sections you had experience with as right. well. Yeah, and like I remember like seeing through hikers when I was like doing day hikes and stuff, and kind of wondering what that scene was all about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I think also what's really unique about you is that you know I think when people really get into long distance hiking, it's more typical for them to do something like hike the AT and then naturally progress to the PCT and then the CDT, or maybe they start PCT and go AT CDT, but that's normally the route I think they go. But again, you didn't really do that. You went, uh, how shall we say a more dramatic route? Uh, tell us real quick about some of the routes you chose to do instead of the standard AT PCT CDT. Yeah. So that's kind of your normal progression. Um, but I, uh, so after the AT, I I read um, and there was an article in Backpacker Magazine about this um, uh, the C to C route, which at the time no one had uh, done, and I just sort of got just kind of became obsessed with the idea, and so I figured out how to kind of make it work as far as an itinerary goes, and um, did that after I graduated college. Awesome. Uh, so it was two thousand four, two thousand five. So that was like seventy seven thousand seven hundred seventy five miles ish. Um, it took me eleven months. I <laughs> started in August, finished in July. Uh, started up in like way up in there in Quebec, and then finished in Washington State. Oh my god! Um, so that was two thousand four, two thousand five. And then I kind of went on this like that was the, like the first like three big trips. So the, there's that one. There's Great Western Loop, which was sixty eight hundred seventy five miles around the American West, and that was in two thousand seven. And the way I talk about, well, let me, I'll, and then the third one was um, the Alaska Yukon Expedition, and that was in 2010, and that was 4,700 miles in six months. And there was sort of like, there was a progression with all those. So like, you know, through hikers, they have their progression, like AT to PCT to CDT, that totally makes sense. It's sort of this, like, you're, you're, you're developing skills um, and then sort of taking on something that's slightly harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it was similar where like the, the Appalachian Trail was at the time the hardest thing I'd ever done. And then the C2C route, um, that was also the hardest thing I'd ever done. And you could say the other things about the other the other trips. But like that C2C route was a little bit more um, cultural. So it was uh, or maybe more of a blend. It, it had like I was on the International Appalachian Trail, the Appalachian Trail. But then like when I hit the North Country Trail in upstate New York and took that all the way up to North Dakota, it was very cultural. So mm-hmm. like I was um, just meeting, seeing a lot more of the, seeing a lot more people, um, um, meeting a lot more people, staying with a lot more people. Um, and then like when I was walking across the Northern Plains, it was like, you know, it was like, like, you know, huge combines <laughs> in South Dakota, in North Dakota and like ranchers in Montana. And it was, uh, it was, it was very, um, 
cool experience. I was 23 years old. And then the Great Western Loop, that was um, sort of, I describe it as like my peak, like the, um, the, uh, the trip where I tested all the limits as far as like how fast, how far, how light I could possibly go. So it was mm-hmm. like 33 miles a day, um, uh, base pack weight of like seven or eight pounds. Wow. So just like, it was super athletic, um, super regimented. And then the Alaska Yukon expedition, that was like a totally different beast. It was, uh, had 2,100 miles of off trail travel. Um, it had pack raft, it had, you know, involved skis. So it was much more of like a, um, it was on the same par of like, like, uh, magnitude with those other trips as far as like distance and duration, but it was way more adventurous. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, I think that's you sort of answered my question earlier again about what drew you to doing each one of these different hikes, taking the steps from sea to sea to the Great Western Loop to Alaska, um, instead of doing the normal long trails like the AT, PCT, and CDT. Like it seemed like a natural progression for you in difficulty. That was definitely part of it. Yeah, there was um, I, the way I describe it. Like you know, to go. Um, to go back and do like the Appalachian Trail now, it'd be like going back, it'd be like someone going back and repeating like fourth grade, just yeah. a little too sort of basic, uh, at least in my mind. Um, so I'm the appeal to me of long distance backpacking and backpacking in general has always been um, learning and expanding my skill set. And mm-hmm. um, so when you look at the trips in that sense, they kind of make sense. Um, and sometimes like before, you know, I, you don't know what a trip or what an experience like that is going to be until you kind of get into it, like deeply into it. And then you're like, okay, this is what this experience is about. Yeah. Yeah. Which one of those, uh, was your favorite, um, of the three? That's like asking, you know, what child do you love the most? Um, (laughs) I I just think, I think that at the time they all, um, served, they've all served a really good purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when you finished with Alaska, I think that was when the real accolades started coming in for you, right? Like adventurer of the year by outside national geographic person of the year by backpacker. Uh, um, no, that actually, no, they were spread out. So it was person of the year backpacker was the C to C trip. Um, the adventure of the year from national geographic, that was, um, the great Western loop. And then, um, the adventure of the year from outside was the Alaska trip. So yeah, it was nicely spread out. Um, That's awesome. And I mean, how did it feel to get all that recognition within the community? Like, did it change anything about you or your approach to the outdoor community after getting all those accolades? So on a personal level, no, because, you know, anyone who does these, these trips knows that you just, they're not justifiable on the grounds of fame or fortune. Just not. (laughs) It's just like too many hard days. Um, too many variables too, I think about just, yeah, maybe too much risk. Yeah. Um, you just, it just, you just couldn't suck it up for that long dealing with, dealing with those conditions if you weren't in it for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, so it didn't change like my, my approach to trips. Um, the one thing that it did probably change, especially after the Alaska trip was just the, um, level of like, uh, communal credibility and the reach. Mm -hmm. Uh, so like it's, um, it's, uh, people take you more seriously if you've had a 16 page feature story in national geographic magazine. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Or if you have a book, if you've written a book about backpacking gear that has that yellow collar around the cover. Yeah. So I think that's how it changed things. 
Yeah. Yeah. Do you still do long distance hiking hundreds of miles or more? <laughs> uh, that's an interesting question. So after that Alaska trip, so the Alaska trip, like you have to understand is like, um, I was basically like uncomfortable for 180 days. Like I, I don't, I don't want to like, um, I, I've never served in the military, but I don't think it's like a huge stretch, the stretch to say that like, it's like similar conditions to being in war where there's just like constant uncertainty where you wake up in the morning and you're not actually convinced you're going to like have dinner that night. Um, and uh, that just got, that got old. It really like wore on me. Um, and like my mom multiple times when I would call her from various locations would say th something like, you know, you're going to have like PTSD when you get done with this. Cause it was just super, it was just super stressful. Yeah. Um, so um, after the Alaska trip, I, um, I, you know, my appetite for adventure had been sort of quenched for a while. And I also, before I left for that Alaska trip, I, I was at this place in my life where I was, so I was in my late twenties. Um, I felt like I was like hustling a lot and, and like, but still living on crumbs. I was like, I could put all of my belongings in plastic totes and put them into my Pontiac vibe. And I uh, rented month to month and, um, uh, you know that annual letter you get from the social so, social security administration telling you like what your earnings have been. Oh, mark it, it on the like, calendar every year. Yeah, it was like laughable to see like what my earnings were every year, and I think that just that lifestyle for me sort of had reached an expiration date. It's sort of like um, like for how many years can you be a ski bum? Yeah, right. Similar thing. Um, so after I kind of had told myself that like after this Alaska trip you know, see if there's like, see what comes of it. And if, and if it's just like not working still, like if you still feel like you're hustling and like, you know, bashing your head against a wall to make it work, then just get a normal job and just, um, you get into like adventure part-time mm -hmm. and thankfully that's not what happened. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So then I see, um, you've been doing for the last several years, guided expeditions and backcountry trips. Love to talk a little bit about that. Um, so what are some, uh, guided trips you've been doing, uh, over the past few years? Yeah, so we, I started guiding trips in 2011. At the time, it was like I just sort of threw it out there, not have no idea if people would even sign up. <laughs> it's like, it's like, well, like you want to you want to come hike with me? Um, and I think at the time, like I I expected the program to be, um, I think I had, uh, I think I expected the program to be where like an opportunity for them to get a piece of what the trips were like for me. So like we would go on like really hard, adventurous, um, bold trips. And I realized like the very first season, so I ran three trips that summer, that that just that wasn't gonna work because the like the base skill level for most prospective clients was way lower than it needed to be. Mm -hmm. So I like retooled the program and it became like this sort of very learning intensive operation. We don't call ourselves a school, but um at the we have a very strong educational focus and uh, we run three, five, seven day trips. And like there's a, the three day trip is like a, I call it backpacking fundamentals course. And it's really designed just to like help beginner backpackers, even first time backpackers, like figure out how to backpack. And it's you know, pretty basic stuff. Um, what gear they need, what food they need. And then we get out there and we, we show them how to like set up shelters and purify water and how to navigate and how to pack their backpack. So it's all pretty basic. And then the more advanced trips, the five and seven day trips, we're taking on a little bit more advanced skills, um, uh, like off-trail navigation. And then uh, like on the high end, we offer uh, 
chips up in the Brooks range. So now you're dealing with grizzly bears, big rivers, um, uh, really difficult terrain. Natural difficulty leveling up. So, you know, it's great. You mentioned navigation instructions, a key part of what you offer. Um, I think it's safe to say you're one of the experts, the absolute experts in the industry on navigation. And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who want to do more to improve their navigation skills so that they can do better and feel safer in the backcountry and also not be restricted to the trail system. So I guess my first question on navigation, because I want to talk about that a lot, is what's your personal view, your personal philosophy on the importance of navigation and why people should always be trying to improve their navigational skills in the backcountry. Yeah, I say it. So the way I describe navigation, it's one of the, um, it's one of the most important backcountry skills. And so I say one of the most important, um, but I, it's definitely like the most liberating. So like, I think in terms of importance, I would put it on par with like, um, you know, knowing what gear to pack or, you know, knowing how to prepare your food or leave no trace or some of those, some of those other like core skills, but there's no other skill out there that allows you to, to like, um, really drive your own trip. Um, instead of being, instead of being limited to uh, very well, main tra- very well maintained trails and, uh, having to stay close to a trailhead and, um, relying on very accurate signage, you can really start to wander. It's like freedom in the back country is what it, it is. Sounds, seems yeah. like. If you, yeah. if you can take it to that level and not, and um, so there, there are like, there are grades of navigational competence, right? On one hand, um, like a beginner is just going to be happy to like go out into a, in, onto a trail system and be able to get to a trail junction and orient that map and just determine which way they need to go um, mm-hmm. on the more advanced level. Yeah, yeah, you're going to a place like the Brooks Range and where there are no trails um, and you're navigating entirely off trail and you're trying to find the path of least resistance through really complex terrain with uh, like, you know, tussocks and willow and big river fords. And um, uh, you have the opportunity to follow like moose trails and caribou trails. And so there's this whole, this really high end level of navigation as well. Yeah. So like when we're talking about a navigation course, you know, introducing somebody navigation or building their skills, um, what would you say are the common navigational mistakes people make? (laughs) Number one mistake they make is not paying attention. (laughs) 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 That is like, like the big mistake that they make. Um, so let's see, what do I, I'm just trying to think about how I, um, so the way I, teach navigation is I, I ask clients to tell me, um, to tell me a story about, uh, where they've been and where they're going. I'm sorry, where they've been, where they are and where they're going. And when they tell me this story, I ask them to support the story, um, with them using their navigational instruments. And, um, so for example, um, a client will say, all right, well, listen, we started here this morning. This is where we camped last night. And they'll show me on the map where they, where we camped. And they'll say, now we're at a trail junction. And, uh, and we reached this trail junction after walking uh, for an hour. And, and then they, they look at the map and they're like, okay. And, and I think we're at this trail junction because um, this junction is about two and a half 
miles from where we camped and we walk at about two and a half miles an hour. Right. So in that case, they're using their map reading skills. They're using dead reckoning. They could like continue to build out the story. They could say, well, I checked on multiple occasions. I checked our, I checked the bearing of the trail and we were always walking east. And so, and this junction is east of where we camped last night. They could have, then they could continue adding. They could say, and um, I look at my altimeter and my altimeter reads that we're at you know, 10,100 feet. And if I look at the map, we're at the 10,100 foot contour line, which probably doesn't have a 10,100 foot contour line, but you get what I'm saying. Right. Um, and then they'll, and then like, um, and then they could like really confirm it. They could fire up Gaia GPS and say, Gaia, where, where am I? And Gaia would tell them exactly that they're at that trail junction. Right. So right. that's sort of telling, you know, that's where they were and that's where they are. And then I'd say, you know, all right, so where are we going? And then they, they, they need to like, tell me this story about, um, again, using their tools saying, all right, well, we're going to go, we're going to hike up to this pass and, uh, the pass is at 12,000 feet. So when we get to the pass, my altimeter should read 12,000 feet. Um, uh, we're going to be walking. The trail takes a, a South turn. So if I take a compass bearing, we should be walking more South. You get the idea. I think that storytelling is like it's the most powerful device that I've found to like to teach navigation, and clients really take to it. They just that makes sense to them. It sort of forces them to like be be attentive, um, and uh, be anticipating of what's ahead, and it forces them to use all their tools. So it seems to work really well. Awesome, awesome. So let's talk about uh, some of these tools specifically that people are going to be using on the trail. So, what navigational equipment do you take with you? Um, and maybe we'll come back to two parts of this: what tools you're going to be using for off-trail, and which ones you should always have for both off-trail and going on something like the AT. So, what equipment do you take with you specifically for going off-trail? So I, I'm um, I'm like an all of the above person. Um, so, but the the importance of those tools will vary depending on where you are. Um, so in a place like, um, let's actually just like, I'll take it simply. So like if you're on the Appalachian trail, the, like the most important tool that you have is a watch because you'll dead reckon all the time. You'll use that data book that you can get. So it'll say like, um, you know, the McAfee knob shelter at mile 4.1. And then there's a spring at mile 4.8. So you've got seven tenths of a mile to go to that spring. And if you walk at three miles an hour, you're going to be in 15 minutes. So you're constantly using your watch. And then when you get to, uh, you don't even need like a compass for the Appalachian Trail because anytime you get to a road, it's either um, east or west, left or right. Um, So you don't like, you don't even need a compass for the Appalachian Trail. Um, uh, An altimeter is really nice for the Appalachian Trail because you can rule out all of the fault summits, which are many along the Appalachian Trail. I'm thinking of Mount Lafayette. Oh gosh, that was my yeah. Like least how favorite. many times are you like, oh, we're almost there, we're almost there? No, yeah. no, you're not. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you have another like, you know, on just another 200 foot roller, another 500 foot roller before you finally get up there. Um. So, uh, and then if you're off trail, I mean, again, that's going to vary a little bit. So, if like if I'm in the High Sierra, um, the most important thing that I'm going to be carrying with me is my is my topographic map because the the features in the high sierra and like in most parts of the mountain west the, the you have more visibility um there's because you're either like in alpine or it's um or like open woodland and then the topography is so distinct like you know you just uh, a a 1500 foot 
vertical face um, just jumps out at you on the map. Right. Whereas um, if you're in West Virginia, those rolling hills, those all those knobs, those are much more difficult to pick up on a map. Um, so again, topographic map, super helpful in a place like the High Sierra. Um, uh, in a place like Alaska, um, uh, topographic maps are helpful, but I'd actually say like the more important thing there, it's not actually a tool, but it's a... Um, it's uh it's pattern recognition so this ability to like look out at a landscape um, and based on what you've seen um, before you can pick you can you can correctly identify like um, where you're gonna encounter thick brush where you're gonna encounter like standing water where um, you're gonna encounter like the the safest or where you might find like the safest place to cross a creek so and that's just sort of reading the landscape Okay, so what's an example of like that pattern recognition where you're able to do that over like a hundred or two hundred mile stretch in the Brooks Range or on your Alaska Yukon expedition? Yeah. Okay. So, so if you're in the Brooks Range and you're there and say like um, you're there like uh, say in June, and you look out at this like field of like this kind of flat expanse, um, of, like open terrain with no 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 trees. Maybe like maybe you can see like some texture like some shrubby stuff on top and you mm -hmm. see these little like cotton ball like they look like little cotton like plants with cotton ball tips mm -hmm. stay the hell away from the, those things because <laughs> that is a that is a sea of tussocks and um tussocks are like um they're it's a unique uh, like arctic um plant but it's basically like walking on um it's like walking on like unstable six gallon uh like utility buckets something mm -hmm. like that you know or like or like um imagine like uh walking on a carpet with a bunch of basketballs underneath it mm -hmm. something like that <laughs> just incredibly <laughs> unstable yeah and yeah it's just no yeah they're just yeah they're just the 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 wear and tear on your lower extremities is really is really intense so um if you can identify a tussock field um just based on what you've seen in the past you can you know do your best to avoid them mm-hmm Awesome. So coming back to this uh, maps question on topographic maps. So it sounds like you're more in, are you more in favor of paper maps or are you, pref or do you prefer going more like digital maps or are there different situations where each one's better? I guess start with the first yeah, this one. Is, Which yeah, one? This is interesting. This is a really interesting question. So um, Alan Dix and I were actually just talking about this the other day. So, um, so if you have studied the map the paper map if you if you've studied the paper map really well mm -hmm. um and if you just sort of understand like the general topography like where the major drainages are where the major ridges are um you're already like sort of familiar with your route um mm -hmm. i think you can use a i think you can use a digital map and be fine like you uh, you could just be on like gaia all day long um but my experience is that um the limited the limited um screen size of a smartphone makes it really difficult for for clients to understand that macro topography and um, if you don't understand the macro topography it's a little it's it becomes difficult then to follow the micro topography because you're really not sure where you are and where you're going in the grand scheme of things mm -hmm. so uh, we actually had this experiment last year where um, uh, last minute I scored a permit um, 
in Yosemite to take a group south of Tioga Road. And our, our route originally was going to be north of the road. So I had printed out topographic maps for the group, and they were, but they were of a route that we didn't end up taking. But they had all downloaded the maps beforehand on their phones. So we at least had, you know, they all had digital maps. Mm-hmm. And clients just didn't, they didn't grasp navigation on that trip like they did on others because they just there was just something missing. They were just looking at the screen size. They're just too small. They just weren't really understanding where they were. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that um, uh, personally, I still love paper maps to navigate with. Um, and my phone is a backup. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my, that's kind of my style. And I think that most, I think that for the sake of learning how to navigate, I think that most people um, will do better with that approach. Yeah. Um, there obviously is like a huge efficiency in having just a digital map. Um, you know, if you're just like following a trail or if you, um, it's just, if, or if you already know the topography, you can just pull it out and quickly just double check. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's kind of where my, it's kind of where I fall right now. Yeah. Um, so then going with paper maps, you probably have to be working on things like bearings and declination. Um, so like for someone who's going out on a wilderness trek using a paper map, like what would be like a key skill that they need to know? What should they at least know about things like declination and bearings before they're heading out into the back country? Um, so there's a lot of things. <laughs> um, so there's actually, um, if anyone really is interested, there's a, so I did this great navigational series, like basically a how to navigate series on my, uh, it's up on my website. It's like a four part um, series. And in the last, the very last post is a, like, basically like a skills checklist. There's a whole skills checklist. And if you want to specifically talk about maps, so you need, you should like a, you should be able to look at a map and you should be able to, um, uh, measure distances. You should be able to, um, uh, measure, uh, topographic change. So like in like vertical feet or vertical meters, um, you should be able to look at the map and, um, determine, um, or like make some, um, at least determine like where there's going to be vegetation that's taller than your head and where there isn't going to be. And sort of the, uh, the, the pro skill is the pro skill is looking at the map and speculating, even more in depth. So like if you look at um, an area on the map that's shaded in green, you should be able to like look at the map and say, well, I'm going to find lodgepole pine here and I find ponderosa pine here and I find aspen here and I find spruce fir here. And if you're looking at a map uh, or an area on the map that's white, you should be able to say, I'm going to find um, uh, alpine tundra. I'm going to find talus. I'm going to find scree. I'm going to find um, a meadow. I'm going to find an avalanche slope. Um, so that would be like the shading part. Um, uh, you should definitely also understand the difference between um, magnetic north and true north, so you can properly orient that map. Okay, that's another like really important thing. Do paper um, maps have uh, listings of declinations on them, um, or is it like sp- only specific ones, like US Topo or Nat Geo? Uh, it would depend on uh, any any decent map is going to have a, a a declination adjustment on it. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I'm not sure and, like a trip. I'm not sure like a AAA car map would, but. Um, any like, if you print out a map from like Caltopo, um, or if you buy a, if you were to like somehow find a printed an original like USGS printed map, it'll it's gonna have a declination chart on it. So okay, so you have your maps, you have your uh, compass. Are there any specific compasses that you recommend? A specific watch that you recommend? So I like, as far as the compass goes, um, I like uh, there's a, a great Sunto um, 
great Sunto compass, the uh, M3, M3DG, and it's got a global needle on it. And the global needle, it's, you know, it's designed so that you can go northern hemisphere or southern hemisphere and have it be equally functional. The nicer thing about that global needle, though, is that your compass doesn't need to be perfectly uh, level for it to operate properly. Like it, it's, um, you've got a little bit of an, you can tilt it a little bit and it still works well. Um, so that's the compass I like, and it's not inexpensive. Um, and I've actually heard that it's be, it's been discontinued, maybe or maybe like not in stock right now. Um, so that's the compass I like. Um, but if you're, it depends on how much like how much compass use you're doing. I mean, if you just if you just need to get to a trail junction and just find north, a very simple like base plate compass that costs fifteen bucks is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need it to be a, you don't need it to be adjustable. Um, you don't need it to have a global needle. It does definitely doesn't need a sighting mirror. Um, so that's kind of compasses. As far as the watches go, um, if you're just gonna if you're just doing dead reckoning, you could buy a, a ten or fifteen dollar watch that just tells time. Uh, I think digital is easier to work with. Um, so basic digital watch. Um, if you um, are going to be in like a place with some vertical relief and you want, um, it's really nice to have an altimeter. So you could buy a, the altimeter watches are pretty inexpensive now. I think you could probably find one for like 150 bucks. Um, the best watch though, it's these, it's the GP, it's the GPS watches. Mm-hmm. So like the, uh, my favorite for backpacking is still the Sunto Ambit three peak. Um, uh, you could also do like the Sunto nine. Some of the issues with these like, fancy watches nowadays is that the battery life is actually worse than it used to be because now they have like touch screens it's like a color it's like a color touch screen um so it just doesn't it's not as battery efficient as the old like um dot matrix style mm-hmm. and if you have a gps watch i mean that like that simplifies a lot because now you don't even have to dead reckon because you just hit your lap button at a trail junction and you can and the watch will tell you how long you've walked since the last time you hit your lap button um, it'll also record uh, all of your it'll record your vertical gain and loss for the day mm-hmm. so uh, like if you're doing like any of these high routes uh, which i think we'll probably get into later uh, so any, any route and not even just a high route any any trail or route that is extremely vertical um, the, what you'll find is that the limitation is actually not your horizontal distance each day. It's how many vertical feet you can sustainably climb each day. So we have found uh, in, in guiding trips in locations like, say, Rocky Mountain or the High Sierra, it's extremely predictable how many vertical feet per day a group is going to go based on their fitness. So like a, like a, a strong group. So like, a, like, Andrew, how old are you? Uh, 33, I think. And what, yeah, 33. What's your, What's your fitness relative to your peers? Uh, definitely above average. Um, okay. Declining by the day since I've been, <laughs> since I finished my through hike three months and counting. <laughs> okay, and then um, and what is uh, what's your height and weight? Uh, six foot exactly, one eighty, I'd say. Okay, so I would put you in our one of our high intensity groups, and those groups those groups are like like within um. By the end of the trip, on average, they'll be within like 100 feet plus minus of about 3,250 vertical feet of climbing per day. Awesome. It's that sounds remar- doable. remarkably consistent. Awesome. And obviously, you know, what goes up must come down to. But um, so anyway, so if you have an altimeter or a, a GPS watch, it'll record that. So you'll start to like, 
um, you know, we can be look, I can be looking at the watch and go like, all right, well, this group has about a thousand vertical feet left for the day. And wherever, wherever, you know, we're going to climb a thousand vertical feet and they're going to want to camp. Yeah. So figure that out. Yeah. Cool. Oh, cool stuff. Good stuff about navigation. Um, I wanted to say before we actually, I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the high routes, but before I do that, um, kind of want to wrap up the navigation thing, navigation thing, uh, a story. Can you give us an example of a time where using your navigation skills really helped you get out of a tough situation? You know, I mean, the idea with the navigational story is that you don't end up in a tough situation. That's the right answer. <laughs> yeah. So it's never like if you're having to, so um, clients will like, we'll teach map and compass and mm -hmm. it's like clients will go like, are you going to teach us triangulation? And I'll say, no. And they'll say, well, why not? And I'll say, well, triangulation is something that you would only have to do if you already made several mistakes. Like triangulation is finding yourself. And why are you mm -hmm. ever like, why are you ever having to find yourself? You should always just sort of be found. And if you're telling your, and if you're constantly telling yourself this navigational story, you just kind of always know where you are, you know where you're going, you know what you should be expecting. Um, and and the one thing I didn't mention about this navigational story earlier is that when is that when the story is that when the, your when your story is is um, no longer consistent with what your navigational tools are telling you, that's where you need to stop and figure out what's going on. So, for example, like that story that we told earlier. If um, so, suppose that uh, suppose that you know from that trail junction you started hiking towards that pass, and you're like, okay, yep, we're walking south. And you get to what you think is the pass and your altimeter watch reads 11,500 feet. And you're like, well, like the pass though is at 12,000 feet. And like your altimeter watch is never going to be off by 500 vertical feet. So that's at that point you would stop, you take out your map, like, you know, maybe you fire up guy GPS and like you figure out what's going on. Why, why are your, why are your tools telling you it's inconsistent with your story? Mm -hmm. And maybe in this case, it was a fault summit. Maybe in this case, there was like, you know, you took a wrong turn. There's and as a, was a use trail to another pass. Who, who knows what was going on? But the point is that you, that you're, that you're now, your story is not adding up. So stop and figure it out. Right. It's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. And it's, some, it's, yeah, it's like a constant self check to make sure where you are. Um, and then that way, yeah, like you said, it prevents you from being in a situation where you're now out of position because you've been doing a constant self check-in. Right. So awesome. Cool. Um, so yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the high routes now. Um, so with us talking about the high routes, there might be some of us, um, who are still a little unfamiliar with what exactly they are and how to get at them. So can you quickly describe like what the high routes are and what you and, and why you and a, a growing number of people are really being drawn to them? Yeah. So high route is, um, uh, let's see how do I describe this. Um, it, it's a, uh, they tend to be like safe, uh, 50 to 200 miles and they um they follow the best terrain um and 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 it's and um when the terrain stops being awesome the 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 route also stops right <laughs> um so typically they're going to follow like a a, a, a like a a watershed i think a watershed divide would probably be the like more most standard um thing to follow and that could like in some cases like the wind river high route or the fifth or traverse 
it coincides with the um, with the continental divide. Mm-hmm. Um, in other cases, like say the Kings Canyon High Basin route, uh, it follows the it's basically the upper watershed of the Kings River. It's like the the South Fork and Middle Fork of the Kings. Um, uh, um, in Yos- the Yosemite High Route, it circumnavigates the upper watershed of of the park, or it circumnavigates, circumnavigates basically the, the park boundary, which coincides with the watersheds of the Tuolumne and Merced Rivers. So um, high routes are, um, they're not intentionally off-trail, but they end up being um, having a lot of off-trail travel just because the where the route should go, um, there's no trail. Right. Um, um, but they also shouldn't be contrived. So you're not like, you don't want them to be like stupidly hard and you don't want them like, you shouldn't be like seeking out the hardest train. It should be the most sort of like natural, most scenic sort of like best bang for the buck. Right. So based, so like following the tops of the Sierra, but following it in a way that logistically makes sense for you at the same time. Yeah, right. Cause you also don't want to like go get too technical. So like the, the limitation, like the technical limit on most high routes is going to be like about, it's going to be like class three, mm-hmm. which would be like most people describe that as scrambling. So uh, hands and feet, um, probably not significant consequences in the event of a fall. Okay. Okay. What would you say, like the level of experience, you kind of answered that by saying class three, but, um, what would you say like the level of experience or, uh, like what does it take for someone to do a high route, um, in terms of off, uh, off trail navigation and general physical, uh, ability and backcountry survival? Yeah. So there are kind of two pieces to it. Um, there's a fitness element and then there's a skill, um, a skill element. Um, the mm-hmm. fitness is you've got to be pretty fit to take one of these things on because, um, the amount of vertical gain and loss is just absurd. Uh, yeah. Like on a, so for context, I, I think on like the John Muir Trail, um, it gains and loses about 350 vertical feet per mile. Okay. Um, or it gains or loses. So 350 vertical feet of change per mile. The Kings Canyon High Basin route is like 750. So more than wow. more than twice as much up and down per mile as on the John Muir Trail. And a lot of people like think the John Muir Trail is like, that's like the hardest section on the Pacific Crest Trail. Mm-hmm. So the Kings Canyon High Basin route is just sort of on like another level physically. Would you say and that's the hardest uh, high route out there? It's actually not. I think the, I think the, um, uh, the Fifner is, uh, the Fifner is, I think like 850, 800 vertical feet up and down per mile or up or down per mile. Um, and uh, it's also like all above to, it's between ten and thirteen thousand feet. Um, the Wind River High Route probably has the most amount of like um, talus and like alpine travel, mm-hmm. so that that route is also pretty pretty difficult. Um, uh, so so there's this physical this physical piece of your preparedness um, that you just you just need to be ready just to just to throw it down. And it's um, you, you, back to our earlier conversation. You can't think about it in terms of miles. Um, uh, it's all about vertical. <laughs> so like I've yeah. had, I've guided some groups where, um, uh, it took us all like, um, like all day, um, we covered, I think there was one day we covered four miles, <laughs> but we did 3000 vertical feet again. And for this group, that was, that was what they had. That was it. So, um, 
So that's, I think, you know, if, if I told them that at the beginning of the day that they were only going to hike four miles that day, they'd be like, oh man, this is going to be easy. <laughs> and by the end of the day, they were all wiped. So, um, so there's the physical piece. And then there's the, obviously the skill piece. Um, you're talking about uh, quite a bit of off-trail travel. Um, and it's also off-trail travel through like fairly remote areas just because um, by virtue of it being off-trail, not too many people get back in there. Uh, so, and the, and the amount of off-trail travel varies, like the Wind River High Route is tops on the list. I think that's, um, it's two thirds off-trail, okay. which is pretty, that's a lot of off-trail travel. It's a, it's a 97 mile route. So it's like 60, like 66, 67 miles of off-trail travel. And then, um, uh, and then like the Fifner Traverse, I think is the lowest and that's like 40% off-trail. Cool. So, That's, and these are all, these are all newer ones too. Like these markings have been like, they're what, no more than 20 years old. Oh, not even. Yeah. So the original route, the original high route was the Sierra high route and that was Steve Roper. Um, and he put together his guidebook. I think he first released his guidebook in like, um, it was like the early eighties. So like basically when I was born, uh, and then, um, he, there's an update to that guidebook. It's a Mountaineers press, um, guidebook. Um, I've got, got it on my bookshelf. I could look up at the copyright. I think it's, I think that guidebook, the last, it was updated like in the late nineties. Um, mm. and so Roper sort of like set the, like sort of define what a high route should be. Um, but it didn't really catch on until like maybe like 10 years ago. Um, and I definitely have been like pushing these things because I think like for me, they just, they work for me on so many levels. They, um, high routes, uh, they're like physically very intense. And I love that. Like I, I'm, you know, I, I, uh, like I'm a, I'm an ultra runner and like a, a long distance, you know, long distance, like I'm training for a marathon right now. So that physical challenge just really appeals to me. Um, they also appeal to me because you can do them in a, in a relatively short period of time. Like I, my life doesn't really allow me to take off for six months at a time anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I'm married. I've, I own a home. I've run a small business. I have that fur child that came in earlier. He'd be, he'd be devastated if I left for six months, devastated. Um, and, uh, but I can get away for a week or two and you can, you can do at least like a pretty heady section of these routes, if not the whole thing within one to two weeks. Um, and then the other nice thing too, is that it's, the route is like all awesome all the time. There's never, there aren't these sections. Like if you do like a through hike, there are like weeks and hundreds of miles that are like, like either like, eh, or like, or maybe, maybe like better. They're like, they're, they're okay. But yeah. And you know, if you just, what, what trip did you just, what trail did you just do? I just did the AT and um, yeah, I'm just thinking about all the times I was in the green tunnel. All of um, those marginal miles where you're just like, I mean, you know, if you have a, if you have two weeks of vacation, uh, you don't want to spend like, you know, your two weeks in that terrain. You want to spend it in like, you know, world-class, like premier stuff, right? Yeah. And I mean, Adventure Allen was talking about that um, when we were talking with him. He said that... uh you know, it's almost frustrating when you're on the John Muir Trail and you have these incredible peaks to your east, and it's like frustrating. Well, I want to go up that way, you know. Yeah. Um, but with the Sierra High Route, you are going up over that section. Exactly. Yeah, and the similar similar experience too with like the Continental Divide Trail um, through the Front Range in Colorado or through the Wind River Range in Wyoming. Uh, it just completely bypasses all of this amazing terrain. 
like you know the um the the Fifner Traverse is like could be like the most scenic 100 miles in the entire Continental Divide Trail, along with the Wind River High Route. So again, those those two those two high routes, you got 175 miles of like of probably like the most scenic terrain in the entire trail, and it, or the, the entire terrain the most scenic terrain that's sort of within striking distance of the trail and the trail just sort of bypasses a ton of it. Yeah. So with these high routes, um, with more and more of them being out there, gaining more and more popularity, do you see new ones coming up on the horizon? Like, are there other high routes out there that are still left to get that really haven't been hit yet? Uh, yeah, there are definitely a few. Um, I, you know, I'm hoping that like some other people sort of take up the slack. I've been sort of preoccupied and haven't been able to like come out with a guidebook every year. Um, uh, I do see some of that happening where like people are putting together things. Um, there, there's still some, some out there, but you are limited by terrain too. I mean, there are only so many places in the country where, um, there's enough terrain to warrant, um, an effort. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I'm just thinking like, um, like here in Colorado, um, I've looked at other, like, you know, other opportunities to like put something together and, it's tougher. It, like there aren't too many. There are like, maybe something down in the San Juans. Like I, I think there's like one other route down the San Juans. But otherwise, like I look at those maps, I'm like, hey, you know, you're kind of you're kind of forcing it. Like you'd have to cross like you'd have to cross you know three jeep roads in 50 miles, or um, or you know, there's basically a trail the entire way, or or like, man, you know, you're really fighting to try to hold your elevation, something like that. Like, it just doesn't, the train doesn't sort of as naturally flow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think there are limited opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, then what's next for, uh, what's next for Andrew Skirka? What uh, high routes are you going to be guiding on this year? <laughs> uh, so yeah, we, so long as the uh, coronavirus doesn't cancel all of our trips, um, we've got a pretty, bu- pretty busy, pretty busy guiding schedule. Uh, we start next month um, down in southern Utah, and then we move to West Virginia. We go up to the Brooks Range in uh, June. We go uh, Yosemite High Route in, or like basically Yosemite in uh, July and September. And then uh, I just put in for a San Juan's permit uh, for August. Awesome. So it's a pretty, pretty busy year. Cool, cool. And how do people uh, keep up with you on these trips? And also, how would people sign up for these trips in the future? Um, so if anyone's interested, uh, my recommendation is to sign up um, as soon as registration opens, which usually is like in the middle of December. Um, we have like, a, there's an open registration period where like it's it's not on a first come first serve basis. There's just sort of like an open window for a couple of weeks. Um, and like this year, all of our trips were sold out by the, basically by like the third week of January, which is wild. Cool. Um, so just get on it early. That would be my recommendation. Um, and then they, um, I'm pretty easy to find if your uh, your readers could just search my last name S K U R K A, and I'll okay. come up. Yeah, cool deal, cool stuff, man. Well, thanks so much for all this. I uh, wanted to do a nice wrap up for us. Want to do three rapid fire questions for you. Um, so first question: What's your all time favorite piece of gear? <sighs> um. You know the one the one piece of gear that has been in my kit for probably the longest is um, it's a uh, uh, 900 milliliter Evernew titanium pot. I bought my first one in 2004, and I think I'm on number I think I'm on number two or three, awesome. which is remarkable. Yeah, cool. All right, question two: One thing you wish you knew before you started backpacking? 
Um, well, I backpacked in a different era. I started to learn to backpack in a different era. But um, <laughs> if I if I if I could do it over again, um, I would uh, adopt the attitude adopt the attitude that um, you buy once and cry once. Buy once and cry once. Yeah, like it. It's yeah, and that's and that applies. I mean, everything else that I get into, I try to kind of do that. Like if I buy a kitchen knife, <laughs> just buy buy the one you want, and that's gonna you know it's gonna last you twenty years. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And number three, would you rather, if you had a choice when backpacking, would you, ne- would you want to never have to eat and drink or never have to sleep? Oh, I definitely would rather not have to sleep. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Cause eating and drinking is lovely. It's the best part about right. it. Yeah. Just, I mean, and then you could just go, go, go. Yeah. Awesome. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. You gave us so much great info. Obviously, we wish you the best in everything you do. Good luck on your guided trips. We'll give a good plug to you in our show notes. And thanks again so much for taking some time to talk with us today. Good deal. Loved it. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care, Andrew. Bye-bye. Adventurer, guide, and author Andrew Skirka, everybody. Our thanks to him for joining us on the show. You can find him at his website, andrewskirka.com, or you can follow him on Instagram, at andrewskirka. For quick reference, Skirka is spelled S-K-U-R-K-A. Also, check out our show notes if you want to link to his book, The Ultimate Hiker's Gear Guide. You can find our show notes by going to blog.gaiagps.com and then look for the podcast link at the top. Make sure to tune in when we have our next show, when we're going to be chatting with Daniel White, who's known on the trail as the Black Alachian. The Black Alachian hiked the AT with zero experience backpacking. In fact, his first night camping was his first night out on the AT. On the trail, he found a trail family and peace in the wilderness. But he also found instances of racism. Daniel's going to talk with us about his many experiences on the AT, including being one of the few black through hikers on the trail in 2017. He also takes us through his very powerful bicycle tour along the Underground Railroad Trail, a 2,000-mile trip from Alabama to Canada that retraces the secret routes that black slaves used in the early to mid-19th century to seek freedom in the North. We also learn about his recent backpacking across Scotland and traversing the Camino del Norte, a historic pilgrimage route along the northern coast of Spain. Definitely a solo traveler and a history buff, The Black Alachian lets us know that his trips are all about meeting people along the way. We're really excited for this episode, and we hope you are too and that you'll join us for it. In the meantime, in case you missed it, make sure to go back and check out our last two episodes where we spoke with long-distance hikers Heather Anderson and The Real Hiking Viking. And finally, if you like the show, please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and make sure to share the show with your friends. They can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and everywhere else you can find a podcast. We would really appreciate if you could do that for us. So until next time, I'm Shanti, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Out and Back Podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Take care, everyone. Bye.